Welcome to Encouraging Truths for Today. We're glad to bring you this message from First Baptist Church in Crockett, Texas. Now please join us as we learn to grow deeper in our relationship with God and each other. Jesus lived a sinless life, having come and born, being born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life. He manifested his divine power and his divinity, the Son of God. He was crucified, taking upon himself all of our sin, that we might be cleared of the guilt through his blood and stand blameless before God. And then he conquered death in his resurrection. And in triumph, he ascended into heaven, and in triumph, he will return. That is such good news. We have to keep that in mind when we look at any other part of Scripture, because Jesus makes the difference. So sometimes when we launch off into a passage of Scripture like we're going to look at today, outside the context of the fuller scope of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Sounds as if that God is going to just shower us with blessings regardless of our spiritual condition. But the reality is what we are reading today in Second Peter only deals with those who have come to faith in Jesus Christ and trusted the good news of salvation through his death, sacrificial death for us, and his powerful resurrection. And because of that, we read this passage with great joy and hope. So I want us to turn our attention today to some good news. Uh, This passage has some very good news for those who have put their faith and trust in Christ. I don't know if you know it or not, but every nation on this planet is unstable. At best. When we think about the culture and the country and the nation in which Jesus was crucified, it was unstable. When you think about the, the nation and the culture from which the letter of Second Peter was written, it was a very unstable culture ruled by an ungodly leader named Caesar. All of the letters of the Apostle Paul came out of that same context. Uh, That's the way the world will be until Christ returns. And every nation on the globe is uncertain. It may appear that some nations control their destiny, but that is not true. They are unstable uncertain, and every nation on the globe is temporary. The only kingdom that is permanent is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you have placed your trust in Christ, then then you have a dual citizenship. You are a citizen of this nation, but ultimately you are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And that kingdom stands secure. It, it will never, never fade. It will never fail. It will be lasting and eternal. 
And so when you think about that kingdom in contrast to the kingdoms of this world, it's unshakable. It's unchanging and unchangeable. It is eternal. And if you have put your trust in Christ and you're a citizen of the kingdom of God, there are some great blessings you need to hear about today in 2 Peter chapter 1. So let's look today at verses 8 through 11, but we're going to read it in the context of verses 3 through 11. But the sermon will be on verses 8 through 11. His divine power, it says in verse 3 of 2 Peter 1, His divine power, that of Jesus Christ, has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption and depravity that is in the world through lust and evil desires. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue add knowledge, and to knowledge add self-control, to self-control add perseverance, to perseverance, godliness. To godliness, add brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness, add love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was purged or cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble." For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. And Father, we pause today to thank you for the King of our hearts, Jesus. We thank you that his kingdom is unshakable and unchanging. Father, we pray today that you would um, elevate our perspective, increase our faith, deepen our commitment, and strengthen our trust in you. And so, Father, I do pray that you would speak to us from the pages of your word, because unless you speak, I have nothing at all to say. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
Well, I want us to think about the blessings that come to us as a result of being a part of the kingdom of God. Sometimes if we neglect to reflect on these blessings, we, we become very discouraged, distracted, and defeated in our thinking and in our living. And so I want us to walk through verses 8 through 11 and notice four rich blessings that believers have who have put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, we have the blessing of abundance. Look with me at verse 8. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we are to have a life of abundance. Now, initially, because of false teaching, we think of material abundance. We'll have things and we'll have stuff. It goes deeper and higher than that. It is a rich spiritual blessing that comes into our lives. Regardless of our circumstances or our position or our possessions, we have this rich abundance about us in life to where our life is filled with Christ, therefore we live a full and abundant life. And it says, if these things are yours, what are these things? Well, I know we've uh, referred back to this in the past several weeks, but, but just look again. Initially, it, it seems to be pointing to those things that we are to build into our lives, the things we are to add there together to become what God wants us to become as we walk with Him. We're to add to our uh, faith, virtue, and virtue. We're to add knowledge, etc. We're to add all of that. If you have these things, then you will abound. Then if you back up another verse into verse 4, we have exceedingly great and precious promises. Those are some things that we have that bring about that spiritual growth in us. Uh, but then it, it also talks about that we are partakers of the divine nature, not that we ever become divine, but the Holy Spirit lives within us and the very nature of God begins to express himself through us then if you back up even further we have been the recipients of his divine power that he has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness and so because we have all these things if you have all these things then you will abound and you will not be barren or unfruitful rather you will be prosperous and very fruitful in your life in a spiritual sense. That's really good news. I can abound even when everything around me seems so unstable because I am a citizen of the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But it says in verse 8, If these things abound... You will be blessed in a very real, real way. 
Do you know Christ desires for you to live an abundant life? He doesn't want you just to, to get by, to, um, to just get pulled, pulled down. And he, he longs for you to live an abundant life, not in the sense of the stuff that you have, but what he pours into your life. He longs for us to live for that which lasts. He longs for us to to make investments in his kingdom and for his kingdom to make investments in us that we might be rich in a spiritual sense. I want you to look at a passage with me that many times we simply quote verse 10 of John chapter 10. But I want us to read uh, quite a few verses here that, that put that verse in context. Verse 10, the last part says, I have come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. That's one of those verses that out of its context can take on uh, various meanings, but in context it takes on a greater meaning. And it's in the context of Jesus identifying himself as the good shepherd. Beginning in verse 1, he says, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. And when they were tending the sheep, they would build a structure where they would bring the sheep at night and there would be one door there. And the, the shepherd would sleep across that doorway, protecting the sheep. Uh, they were secure and safe. And he's talking about if, if anyone doesn't come through the door, uh, they are there as a, an intruder, a thief, or a robber, or a predator. So it's a graphic picture that they would have been very familiar with. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep, it says in verse 2. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his sheep by name and leads them out. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus used this illustration, but they did not understand the things which he spoke to them. Then Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. He is the door. The door of protection, the door of entrance, what a great picture that is. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door, he says in verse 9. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill. I have come 
that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Just think about that picture. Everyone except for Christ is after a piece of you. They are takers. And what they offer is deadly. But Jesus, being the great good shepherd, wants what is best for you. And when you come to him and you come through that door into his kingdom, then you have the abundance of a pasture filled with blessings, is the picture he's painting. The thief comes to steal and to kill, but the shepherd has come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. As the 23rd Psalm says, he leads me beside the still waters and into the greenest of pastures. Then it goes on in verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But he who is a hireling or a hired man and not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep and am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep." Then if you jump to verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my hand. Now just think about the picture there. He's the door of the sheep. He is our protector. He is also our provider when he opens the door for us to feast in the fields of green pasture. And he is also one who is perseverant in protecting us in our salvation. Now I know I've used this image before, but but, but let me use the image this time with Maya, our soon-to-be six-month-old granddaughter. If I was carrying her right now, and she was holding on to me, would her safety be in her hands or my hands? My hands. It's not about the grip she has on me. It would be about the grip I have on her. So when you think about salvation, think of it in those terms. I didn't save myself. I can't keep myself saved. It is a gift of God. And my salvation does not depend upon my ability to grip Christ tightly, although I do. But my ultimate security is the fact that I am in His hands. And no one can snatch me out of his hands. Isn't that good news? If we believe anything else, then, then you believe 
If you believe it depends on us, you believe that my granddaughter at six months old can hang on to me and keep herself safe. There's no way you can keep yourself safe. Only Christ can do that. And the Bible says here that we have that great assurance that once you have truly come to Christ and you've been placed in his hands, no one can snatch you out of there. And evidence of that, Peter will tell us in 2 Peter 1, is the way that we have this passionate pursuit of the things that please him. So if you are his, Peter is saying in 2 Peter 1, these things are yours. If you belong to Christ, just look at what you have. You have faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, love. That all is a gift from God that can be developed in you. But it is a work of our faith and our trust and us exercising those things to grow as he would have us to grow. And so we have this great abundance because we are citizens of the unchanging, unshakable kingdom of Jesus Christ. But secondly, we have awareness. Verse 9, for he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten he, has, he was purged from his own sins. He is one who lacks this, is short-sighted. Lacks, if you lack something, it simply means you don't have it in your possession. A moment ago, I realized I was talking into a lifeless microphone because it did not possess batteries. I didn't check it before I got up here. And I did it lacked batteries. Because it lacked batteries, it was useless. Other than if I talked louder, it could appear that it was working, but it wasn't. And we had a microphone in our church in Kansas City. It was one of those old metal microphones, like World War II microphones that didn't have a soft cover but had a metal cover. And it, it sat there, and it, it looked really good if you're in an antique shop, but it was there on the pulpit. Not only did we have that, we had those old metal fans that didn't have enough screen on them but had really sharp metal blades. And, and a lady one time walked by there, and, and it caught her skirt and tied it up and pulled her toward that and she was afraid she was going to lose a leg uh, it was it was like a you know a, a lot of things like that in that church but we had that microphone I'm preaching a sermon one time at a funeral and this rock station starts coming into our sound system and so uh, you know I've got just enough rhythm that I was kind of preaching along with Sweet Home Alabama or whatever was going on on the radio, and I thought, this is not good. So after the funeral, I took that and I put it in a closet. Well, this man came to me. It was hard of hearing. And uh, the next Sunday after I preached, he said, you get that microphone back up there. I couldn't hear a word you said. And I said, yes, sir, I will. He didn't ask me to plug it in. He just asked me to put it back up there. 
So I put it back up there, preached the next Sunday, and he came out the door and said, that was so much better. Thank you for putting that microphone back up there. Well, that was his perception. But sometimes our perception is of a deception. A moment ago, when I was holding the microphone, I just continued to hold it because I already had held it. I didn't want to distract you from the scripture by setting the microphone down, so I continued to speak into a dead microphone, not to deceive you, but in hopes of not distracting you. But just think about He's saying here, if you lack these things, if you don't possess them, what does it say? You'll be short-sighted even to blindness. Even to blindness. Here's the picture. The picture literally means someone who is closing their eyes in order to see. Now, I know some of us are like that. Like right now, what's really bothering me with my glasses off is, is everybody from the third row back is a blur. But if you're nearsighted or short-sighted, you, you close your eyes so you can see. Have you ever seen anybody do that? They'll take their glasses off. They'll put them in their mouth sometimes. They'll push them up on the top of their head and they'll, they'll close their eyes so they can see. Uh, I had a staff member that did that a lot in New Mexico and, and I caught myself doing that and I didn't even need to do that but I'd take my glasses off when the print was too small. He's saying if, if you lack these things that we've talked about, all these things that we are to build into our lives in obedience to Christ, based on the promises that he's given us, the divine nature that we are partakers of, if you lack these things, you become short-sighted. You, you can't see beyond this. You can't see the big picture. You can't see the distant promise of his kingdom. And you are at a point of blindness because you can't see what is really true about you or about his kingdom. And so he's saying you have no awareness of who you are in Christ. If you lack these things, you either don't belong to Christ or you've never progressed and grown toward a life of maturity in Christ. Now, if someone is short-sighted and needs help, they, they usually do something about it. And sometimes it's as easy as taking a vision test and getting fitted for glasses. But the reality here is, if you need help seeing, you either don't know Christ, and the Scripture says in 2 Corinthians 4 that your eyes have been blinded by Satan. You are completely blind spiritually. But here, uh, the Apostle Peter is saying, you can be in a spiritual condition where you are so short-sighted that you think you are in good standing with God, but you have not progressed or grown in these things. You've never partaken of the promises of God. You've never pursued this ladder of spiritual growth in your life. You've, you've never unleashed the divine nature in your heart. And if you are in that condition, he says, you are short-sighted even to the point of blindness. You may not be blind, but you still can't see. It's all a big blur to you. 
So have you ever felt that way spiritually when you're not walking with God, when you're not growing, when you're not pursuing the things of his kingdom and, and life becomes very blurry and you're, you almost are like a lost person who can't see? That's what he's warning against. Seeing what only is near, not able to see the big picture of the kingdom. But not only are you short-sighted to the point of blindness, but it says if, if you lose this awareness, you have forgotten that you have been purged or cleansed from your old sins. See, if you take your eyes off the king and the kingdom and you become short-sighted in this life, what do you want to do? You want to live it up because you don't have much time left. You, you buy into the culture because you're, you're living a short-sighted life. You, you don't look any different than the lost people around you because you're short-sighted and you have forgotten that you have been cleansed from your old sins. And so because you've been cleansed from your old sins, you should have an awareness where you see the big picture. Your sight is not limited. You truly see the king and the kingdom now. You're living for something larger and more lasting than ever before. And you're remembering that your old sins have been cleansed from your life. And you have the freedom now to pursue goodness and godliness with all that you have. That's great awareness with which we can live. That's what he's talking about. But Satan longs to blur your vision and to mess with your mind. He longs for you to be short-sighted. He longs for you to receive the forgetfulness that he loves to give. But the reality is, if you are a believer in Christ, your old sins have been cleansed by the very blood of Christ that the Scripture speaks about and that we sang about today. Now, let me ask you a question. I'm going to raise my hand as um, admission as well. Have you recently thought of an old sin that has been cleansed in your life? Yeah. Satan longs for us to get caught up in that. I can think about things I did in the fifth grade and feel bad about it. And sometimes on the best day. But then I remember, I've been cleansed from my old sins. I'm a new creation in Christ Jesus. He has set me free from my sin. And I am able to walk in a newness of life. I'm able to progress and move forward. I, I choose not to sin now. I have that ability to move forward and to step up and to do those things that Christ has called me to do that are listed here in 2 Peter 1, 3 through 7. So let's look at Romans chapter 8 about this awareness with which we can live now. We don't have to be short-sighted. We don't have to forget the sacrifice that Christ made for us. Beginning in verse 1 of Romans 8. There is, therefore, now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus. If you have come to Christ and you are in Christ and the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit is dwelling in you, there is no more condemnation heaped on you from God. There is no more. 
Then notice the next phrase. Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, some people say, see there, you're saved by works. It says, if you are in Christ Jesus and you walk according to the Spirit instead of the flesh, then you'll have no condemnation. That's not what it says. Because you have no more condemnation and you're in Christ Jesus, you are going to walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in His flesh. He destroyed sin, and as we sang a moment ago, He crushed death to death. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. If you say, I'm, I just have this unrest in my heart, I have no peace in my heart. Well, maybe it's because you have not set your mind on the things of the Spirit. To be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. And so here's the picture. If you're spiritually minded, you're looking at the king and the kingdom, you're aware. You're aware of a reality others can't see, not that you're seeing things, ooh, um, that kind of thing, but, but you see and you have a vision of things greater than what those in the world do. But if you become short-sighted and you forget that your old sins are purged and cleansed, you're, you're stepping into that past of the flesh that cannot please God. You're stepping into the flesh that only produces death and discouragement. And, and, and if you're a true believer, you need to snap out of that because God has set you free from the law that you might fulfill the things that God desires. So there's awareness Abundance, awareness. Thirdly, there's assurance. We've already talked about that a little bit, but look at verse 10 of 2 Peter 1. Therefore, brethren, so he's summing up all of those things that he's pointed back to. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your calling and election sure, for if you do these things, you will never stumble. So he says, be even more diligent. He's already said be diligent to add these things, but now be even more diligent to make your calling and election sure. Assurance. You are called by God. We read it a moment ago in John chapter 10. My sheep hear my voice. I know them by name. And they come to me, he says, as the good shepherd. Jesus said that. You are called, and that calling of God brings with it the favor and privilege of being invited to Him. And so it's not just 
that you've been called, but it is a calling to you, and as you are called by God and you respond to that, you, you have received the favor of being invited into the kingdom. Now, not all who are called will come. But those who cherish that invitation to come into the grace of God have received a calling that has become precious to them. And then he says, make your calling and your election sure. That is speaking of an election to privilege by divine grace. Now let's think about that for a moment. Make your election sure. I love my wife deeply. I love her with all my heart. I made vows to her at our wedding. I elected to be her husband, and she elected to be my bride. Why would I need to tell her any more that I love her? Why would I need to express that love to her by doing kind, thoughtful things for her? I told her. I expressed that at the wedding. Well, I want to make it sure and certain. I don't want her to ever doubt my love. And I don't want to ever doubt her love. That's what you call a relationship. And so am am I firming up what God did for me when he elected to save me by his grace? No, I'm not firming that up. I'm not adding to what God has done. What I'm doing is I'm bringing great assurance into that relationship by making it certain in my heart and in my life that he loves me and I love him and we're walking in that relationship. Doesn't that make sense? You just want to be sure. You want to live in that assurance. You know, when, when I die, there, there are two things I do not want to leave for my family. I don't want to leave them any regrets or any doubts. I want them to know, beyond me getting in the pulpit and preaching, that I had a passionate love for Jesus Christ. That I woke up in the mornings thinking about him. I went to bed at night thinking about him. I lived my life for him. I brought him into every conversation I possibly could. I tried to give him my best thoughts in his word as I received that. I sang better for him and louder for him than I did for anybody else. I don't want anybody in my family to ever have any doubt whether or not I had true faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And I don't want them to have any regrets. Because I've been with so many families. Well, I'm, I'm not sure. And they can talk to me about their parent all they want, but never mention the name of Jesus. Or never mention their faith. That's such tragedy, isn't it? And so here he's saying, make your calling and your election sure. God has elected to save you. He has poured his grace out to you. He has called you and you have responded. Live a life that reaffirms that every day is what he's saying make it sure make it certain 
Live in the assurance that you have been called and chosen by God. Now, how does that work? I don't know, and I don't think anybody else really understands the complete concept of God's mind in all of that, but I do know that he called me, and he elected to save me by his grace, and I live a life of gratitude to firm up my understanding and my assurance in that realm. And he says, when you do that, you will never stumble. So he says, make it certain. In classical Greek, the word there, they say, was the same word for certain or sure. It was that for a warranty deed, like people use today on houses and pieces of property. And so the commenter, commentator goes on to say this, One's godly behavior is a warranty deed for himself that Jesus Christ has cleansed him from his past sins, and therefore he was in fact called and elected by God. It seals that. And it says when you have that sealed in your life, you will never stumble. It means you'll never trip up. You'll never experience a reversal. You will move forward and press diligently toward Christ, knowing that there will be times where you will struggle, but you'll never stumble from His grace. You'll never fall back where you were. You will be in a new condition and a new relationship with Christ. Then finally, acceptance. I love what it says in verse 11. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Have you ever been in a gathering where you didn't feel accepted? I remember when we lived in Kansas City, Dan, I went to this Broadway uh, play or musical of the South Pacific, and Robert Goulet was the lead part, and it was the Midland Theater. We put on our nicest clothes. I might have well as been wearing a swimsuit and flip-flops. I mean, people were overdressed for the occasion, I thought. And they probably weren't, but we felt like they were staring at us. And, and we just had this sense, I don't belong here. And we were so glad when the lights went off. And we just could enjoy the musical. And have you ever said that to yourself? I, I really don't belong here. I, I, I really don't belong here. Now we might be tempted as believers to say, in our minds, I belong here on this globe. This is my stuff. This is my house. This is my country. This is this, this, this. But reality is I don't belong here. And you might contemplate heaven and you might think, well, I am unworthy for that. I, I belong here, but I, I don't belong there. Well, the reality is if, if Christ has cleansed you of your old sins, you do belong there. He has promised you an abundant, eternal entrance into his kingdom, and you belong there not because of you. You belong there because you belong to him. 
And every blessing that is inhabited in the kingdom of heaven is a part of your eternity, not because it belongs to you, but because it belongs to him, and you belong to him, therefore it all is extended to you. And so I have this great acceptance into the kingdom of God. I have this great knowledge that one day when I step in the kingdom of God, I'll not be there as an intruder. I'll be there as his child and as his purchased possession. And I will belong there because I belong to him. And so I don't need to be too comfortable in this world. I don't need to fret and fear about turmoil globe-wide. I, I don't need to worry about all that. I don't need to stew about that. I don't need to allow that to cause me to stumble because ultimately I'm not from here. My citizenship of eternity is in heaven. The unshakable, unchanging, eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And you see how he heaps up the titles there along with his name? The kingdom of our Lord, our Savior, Jesus, the Christ. It all rests upon him. So the question today is, are you a citizen of the kingdom of of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You might say, well, I'm a Baptist. Well, good for you. But that doesn't cut it. Do you belong to Christ? Not about where you go to church or what you do or what your family is. Are you a citizen of the kingdom of Christ? And are you growing and progressing in your faith to make your calling and election sure? Or have you stumbled into sin? Are you filled with doubt? Has your vision become blurred and is Satan messing with your mind? Come to the victory of Christ today. Make your calling and election sure and certain. So one thing we do as kingdom citizens... And the kingdom of Christ is weekly we come to focus our attention on what he did for us on the cross. We do that as we sing. We do that as we preach. We do that as we go through our lessons in, in Bible study, whether on Sunday or through the week, we focus on Jesus. But a very special time is when we observe the Lord's Supper. He gave us some simple but sacred elements to do that with. We have a, a wafer and a cup by which to do that. And I want to remind you that those symbolize his broken body and his shed blood for you. The question is not, are you sufficient to be saved? But is his blood sufficient for you? Yes. His blood is sufficient. His payment is certain. It's complete, paid in full, just like we sang the scripture. It is finished. And now you are free to live for him. So as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, I 
want to remind you the altar will be open for those who want to come and pray together as a family. The only reason we're not partaking of the bread and cup here at the front is because of the uh, care we are giving and not exposing each other to germs or whatever, so we're not doing that. But that does not in any way hinder you from coming here to pray with, a, with your family. You can uh, socially distance from each other up here uh, to whatever extent is comfortable. Pray where you are, but I would encourage you to contemplate what Christ did for you. And then become even more diligent in pursuing Him. We would like to thank you for joining us for this message from First Baptist Church in Crockett, Texas. First Baptist desires to be a house of prayer with a heart for people, making a difference by making disciples from our neighborhood to the nations. If you would like more information about this ministry, please visit www.firstcrockett.org. Until next time, may God's blessings be upon you.